everybody? Welcome to the What's Up Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Matthew Campbell, and joining me is my partner Camden El Conati, as well as our guest this week, Josh Lipman. Hi everybody, this is uh, Camden El Conati, and I would like to introduce our guest, Josh Lipman. Josh is a very motivated and driven economics student at UCSB. He is a great friend of mine and also a business partner. He is the founder of the School Supply Drop, and he has extensive experience in equity analysis. Welcome to the What's Up podcast, Josh. Great to be here, man. Thanks for the invite. So I've always had a deep passion for finance, particularly fundamental analysis and valuation. I study the markets and value equities in my free time. As Camden mentioned, right now I'm focused on operating the School Supply Drop, which is an event promotion business targeted towards campus events at community colleges and universities, primarily in LA initially, and we plan to expand in the next year. Camden and I are also currently developing an initiative providing students experience in professional investment management while in college and plan to launch that within the next year. Beyond my academic and professional pursuits, I'm a new junior at UC Santa Barbara. I love the school. I'm enjoying the beach town and majoring in economics. Uh, for everyone, anyone planning to transfer to a university in California, I highly recommend choosing UC Santa Barbara. Awesome descriptive of yourself. Um, and I've known you, Josh, for many years since we've been going to uh, Gan al Anim camp together and then sleepaway camp and now this. Right. Um, do you remember right. how we, we reintroduced ourselves to each other and how we got back in contact? Of course. So last year, or yeah, a year and a half ago, I went on Birthright, which is a 10-day trip for Jews between 18 and 30 to travel Israel, free of expenses, and I rekindled with Camden on that trip. I met him and his buddies while I was visiting the wall, the Jerusalem wall. And after that, we got in touch again. We, I, knew, I knew from LinkedIn that he was pursuing a career in finance and he developed a financial services company. We discussed finance valuation, and then we discussed a project that both of us were interested in developing that we collaborated on and are still collaborating on. Uh, so it's been a great year working with Camden. He's one of my best friends and I highly value our working together. Thank you, Josh. And even though we did meet on a coincidence of us both being in the same location at the same time, halfway across the world, I do value, uh, our reintroduce, uh, reintroduction to each other. And we both Absolutely. have uh, very similar personalities. We're both very ambitious and hardworking. We both want to pursue the same career in the future. Uh, what would you say your biggest strengths and weaknesses are? Right. So we do have very similar personalities and similar strengths and weaknesses. I'm sure you'll recognize many of my strengths and weaknesses in yourself. My biggest strengths are my determination, resolve, and decisiveness. 
Over the past year, I've pursued everything I've wanted to do and have seen them all the way through with every obstacle I've faced. Resistance and skepticism, family crises, key founders stepping down from my businesses and pivots in the direction, as have you. Uh, yes. On the flip side of that, with that determination, resolve, and decisiveness, I could be extremely stubborn and hard-headed, which is a blessing and a curse. You know, in business, you have to make tough decisions see them all the way through and be adamant about the quality of the product or service that you provide. You have to have confidence in your abilities, the decisions you're making and what you're providing. But you have to balance that with intellectual honesty, consideration for the criticism you receive from your team, prospective clients and investors. And you know, if you go in every interaction with the goal to win the other person over to your way of thinking and disregard your feedback, You'll have a lot of short-term wins in sales and destroy your business in the long term. So that's one of the things I've learned from my weaknesses. I'm sure you have as well. Yes, and those are great insights. And with Matthew being one of my closest friends and also my business partner, we have uh, also went through our own um, challenges and uh, also most of our well-known successes in life came from being partners together mm-hmm. and starting our own businesses um, and now with you being a leader and a founder, what do you like about it? Um, any tips for other leaders and founders? First and foremost, I love the autonomy that comes with it. Uh, the working for yourself, setting your own schedule and determining your own path for how you're going to accomplish your goals and the responsibility towards the concept you're trying to bring to fruition into your team. Uh, there's nothing Nothing in life is fulfilling as bringing a concept to reality through you and your team's effort and dedication. As far as tips, I have two big tips for founders. Uh, number one is for young up-and-coming founders who have a business idea they've not implemented yet. My advice is to start immediately. If you're stung, if you're young and want to start a business, Start it immediately. It doesn't matter what the concept is. The younger you are, the less risk you're taking. The older you get, the closer you get to financial commitments towards your family, time commitments towards your career, and you miss out on immense opportunity that exists in your youth to learn from your failures and not have them affect you in a significant way. Uh, Number two, so that's number one. Start your business as soon as possible. You'll learn from it. Learn from your failures and you're not as close to your commitments. Number two, it's absolutely critical that you surround yourself with people who tell you when you're wrong and openly criticize you. Uh, That's one of the biggest mistakes people make in business, young or old, is surrounding themselves with their friends, yes men, people who support them, regardless of whether they're making mistakes. The death of all businesses results from a lack of openness and honesty in management about the quality of each other's ideas and decisions. And the most successful businesses adopt a corporate culture that values openness and unrelenting honesty. Uh, In fact, I'm sure both of you know, the most successful hedge fund by return in the world is notorious for its corporate culture, which champions a concept called radical transparency. Uh, which consists of unfiltered honesty and criticism regarding everyone's ideas. And they even adopt this so strongly that they actually record everyone's conversations 
and refer to it during conflicts and disagreements. Now, you don't have to go to that extreme, but you have to understand that you must be intellectually honest about your own weaknesses, your partner's weaknesses, and the quality of each other's ideas. And that's one of the most enriching aspects of starting your own business. Uh, one of the aspects that I love about being a leader, which is if you operate your startup correctly, it will hold a mirror to your face, exposing your biggest flaws and weaknesses in your ideas, your personality, and that builds your character and resilience like nothing else. Yes. Yeah, so Josh is talking about... Uh... Bridgewater Associates, which is founded by Ray Dalio. And Ray Dalio is the founder of one of the world's largest hedge funds. And his principles, which he he authored a book um, named Principles, is how he manages his fund. And it's the most successful fund in the world because they base their operations off of their key uh, principles. And my last question Josh, is where do you see yourself in 10 years? In 10 years, I see myself either continuing to operate my current entrepreneurial endeavor, which is my event promotion business, uh, either solely focusing on that or operating a value-focused investment fund. That's always been my long-term goal, starting my own hedge fund or private equity fund. I absolutely see myself doing that in 10 years. Uh, regardless of whether I'm, regardless of what I'm doing, whether it's a separate entrepreneurial venture, an investment fund, I'm going to continue to develop my career in finance. Uh, last year, I had the pleasure of being a full-time analyst at a tech-focused venture capital fund. It was one of the most enriching, rewarding experiences I had, and entrenched my desire to pursue a long-term career in finance. So. Whatever it is, it's going to be finance-related. Thank you, Josh, and thank you for joining us. Absolutely. So this week's topic was what's up behavior, characteristics, conditions, and identity. Camden, do you want to give us a summary of what happened in the market this week? Yes, so for the past two weeks, we haven't really seen anything noteworthy in the market or in the world economy in general. There's still um, protests going on in Hong Kong, which is affecting the Asian markets, especially uh, the Hong Kong economy. Uh, We have seen protests throughout the world um, with environmentalists uh, stopping uh, subways to more environmentalists stopping hamburger eaters at hamburger joints. Um, But this week, uh, we have seen um, a... Note a memo from Howard Marks, and he discussed the benefits and the reasons why our global economy is facing negative interest rates and why we should ex- uh, expect this to be a norm in the future. Uh, Josh, what are, your, what are your takeaways of negative interest rates? Do you have an opinion of them? Yeah, negative interest rates are interesting because it's, interest rates reflect risk, which reflects quantified uncertainty. So when you look at negative interest rates, you want to think uh, negative interest rates suggest that the credit worthiness of the country is less risky than a country with a positive interest rate. 
so you want to take that into consideration when you consider purchasing a bond for that country or interpreting what the risk, what the interest rate of that country means. Uh, but as far as the as far as the implications of negative interest rates, what they mean for purchasing securities, uh, it's a hedge against the increased loss of purchasing power of that given country. So it has that benefit. Yes, and with the negative rate, the price you pay for a bond today exceeds the sum of the face value you'll be repaid when it matures. So when a bank is paying negative interest rates uh, and you have your savings in this bank, you uh, pay the bank to hold your money not the bank paying right. any interest. And that is going to be a norm that we will be seeing in the future. And that's affecting about 25 to 30% of all debt in the world. And Josh, how does negative interest rates affect the valuation of equity? Uh, negative interest rates decrease valuations or, or they actually increase valuations. So they decrease they decrease the weighted average cost of capital of a company, which increases valuations. So the effect that it's supposed to have on valuations for those respective companies is that they increase in value. With this negative yield uh, economy that we're facing, um, there are some benefits to it. Uh, one, it lowers the cost of borrowing and it helps stimulate the economies around the world. It also weakens the currencies to become more competitive and attractive in the trade space. Right. Camden, do you think the U.S. is liable to see these kinds of interest rates? And how do you see negative interest rates playing out in other countries? Well, our economy is doing well. The U.S. is a safe haven and it's the biggest capital market in the world. But economies with negative interest rates, like in Germany and other parts of Europe, they're currently going through their own recessions. Whereas our economy still has positive interest rates, uh, even though they're decreasing and they have um, uh, estimations of, of further cuts in the future, um, we may see negative interest rates in the U.S. It's not probable, but um, our economy... It's very highly unlikely. Correct. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see negative interest rates in the U.S. anytime soon. Correct. And um, just to transition to our next topic of discussion, behavioral finance. Uh, behavioral finance is, is aiming to influence and to improve our financial decisions. And with our knowledge and literacy of the negative interest rates environment, uh, we're able to make more financially fiscal decisions. Um, we are more sensitive to losses than gains and overly influenced by short-term considerations. We seek to conform to group behavior and prevailing norms, and we overweight the importance of recent events. And these are some of the problems that we face. I think the biggest problem we faced is home bias, where we live in the U.S. and we have no consideration or no faith in the economies around the world. So we don't invest in other economies. So we lose some type of return. What do you think of that, Josh? Do you think you face home bias? No, but as far as uh, the implications and the impact of behavioral finance, I think it's most relevant 
particularly now with respect to the stage that we're at in our economy. Uh, yes, it affects home bias. Uh, we have a tendency to uh, want to purchase the securities and equities that exist where we live. Uh, but what's more significant than that is how it affects the uh, business cycle and the the stage of borrowing that we're at in our economy. Uh, the reasons we have expansions, recessions, depressions at all is because of exactly that tendency to put focus too much on the short term, uh, to react too strongly to losses, to fear uh, when we should be buying when valuations are at rock bottom, and then overbuy when valuations are in the stratosphere where they're at now. And we're seeing a lot of characteristics of a bubble in our current economy, uh, pre-IPO valuations that are sky high that don't make any sense. Uh, the market as a whole is valued above average right now. And one of the tips that I have for your listeners is be cognizant of that, be aware that valuations are sky high, and avoid equities and securities that are overvalued relative to where they should be. And poor behavioral finance and poor uh, financial literacy relates to um, uh, poor creditworthiness and bad uh, investing and financial decisions in the future. And with Matthew and my experience with working in the educational system, uh, with working with high school, middle school students and trying to teach them the basics of financial literacy, we have seen um, from firsthand experience that they have no knowledge of, of proper spending and saving, and they live in a self-gratification society where they spend when they receive, and they don't have any uh, knowledge or respect for the future. What do you think, Matthew? I mean, I think, yeah, you're right. Like you've said, we've, we've seen that firsthand, and... Um there's not a lot being done to change that and it could have really poor implications for the future. So earlier this week, we also got to see uh, some of the earnings from the major investment banks. And for the most part, basically all of the major ones, uh, aside from Wells Fargo, uh, beat earnings expectations, which is obviously a good sign for a strong current economic environment. Um, it was important because some analysts this week had expected the economy to come in short and these earnings to be below what, what was expected. But overall, it was a strong week with most of the uh, banks coming above expectations and showing that consumer uh, consumers remain healthy with growth, wages, and spending. And combined with these strong balance sheets that they saw and unemployment levels, the economy seems to be heading in a strong direction. Although I would want to note, like Josh mentioned earlier, that 
I, I do also think that everything is over overvalued, which the opposition of that statement would be um, this growth is being offset by weakening businesses, business sentiment and capital expenditures are mostly being driven by increasing complex geopolitical risks. Um, so that's kind of the both sides of the coin here. Josh, you mentioned that you think a lot of these things are uh, overvalued. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. You even saw that reflected in the performance after these financials were released. A uh, good example Great. is American Express beat their earnings, beat their estimates, and they still decreased in value. So it reflects the sentiment the market has that even though they're beating earnings, valuations are too high, does not justify an additional increase in the price, increase in the valuation. Uh, and another thing that relates back to the reason valuations are so high is because the stage we're at in our economy. We're at the ninth inning of the economic cycle. We're very close to a recession, end of the expansion. One of the aspects of the financial services companies that reflects this were an increase in credit card spending, a significantly increased year over year and quarter over quarter that reflects the, the consumer sentiment we have right now, increased borrowing, um, continuing to borrow. We're eventually going to reach the point where uh, household debt to income ratios are going to be too high to be sustainable. We're already approaching that point. Uh, same for corporate debt to equity ratios. So that's the biggest rich uh, risk, uh, economic risk right now is reaching that tipping point where uh, we have to pay back that debt and it'll have uh, a permeating effect over the economy. And this relates to our previous discussion on behavioral finance with uh, interest rates being lowered and continuing to be low, uh, it's important uh, for consumers to realize that even though it's becoming very cheap to take out more money and to continue to borrow money or to uh, pay off your credit card uh, debt with personal loans because the APR is cheaper and not as high as the APR for credit card loans, it also means that it's becoming cheaper for you to pay off your current debt, uh, which includes mortgages, because mortgage rates uh, are correlated with the Fed funds rate and also other types of debt. So even though it's very, very easy and very, very co not as costly to borrow as much anymore, uh, you should realize that it's also becoming easier and cheaper to pay off what Absolutely. Debt you Absolutely. I want to say one more thing about that is even though the interest rates are decreasing. I expect an inverse correlation between the decreasing interest rates and the rate at which we're borrowing more money. Uh, of course, it would be wise to pay off that debt, but it goes back to behavioral finance, characteristic of human nature. The more we can borrow, the more we do borrow. Very yes. true. And also um, with the lowering of interest rates, um, they're trying to spruce up the economy and the market, and this means that they're trying to trigger more investing. But we've been seeing uh, more money going into fixed income and other hedging strategies like gold and bonds and less into the equity market because of this current uncertainty and fear that investors have right now. 
Well, that was great analysis, guys. Thank you for that. Our last topic this week uh, is regarding the Arctic. So over last week, there was um, an assembly held. It's called the Arctic Circle Assembly. And it's where basically the nations send representatives, um, any nation that has an interest in the Arctic, as well as countries who are located there. They send their representatives, leaders, politicians, um, and scientists and environmentalists, as well as corporate representatives, all meet to kind of discuss everything going on in the Arctic. And currently, they have a lot to discuss because a recent report found that 95% of the oldest ice in the Arctic has melted, and it's lost 78% of its ice volume, or roughly 10 trillion tons of ice since 1979. This can have just huge consequences on the world. One of the main things that we're seeing because of this is large amounts of oil and natural gas have been discovered in the Arctic. As this ice melts and new land is opened up, we're finding new resources, which is a positive thing from a corporate standpoint, because uh, as we talked about before, liquefied natural gas is um, increasing in popularity and companies and countries that mine and transport it are seeing heavy profits in that. And as the Arctic opens up, we're finding large amounts of uh, of resources that we can access to get liquefied natural gas. And as the ice stays melted, um, it's easier for to transport this gas through areas that would normally, normally be covered in ice. If the ice continues to melt at this route, in fact, there would even be a shipping route from the U.S. to China going north through the Arctic. Which would probably cut the amount of time that it takes to ship, correct? Absolutely. It would cut the amount of time as much as 20 days, which for the massive shipping companies would add up to billions of dollars. Increase profits significantly, cut down shipping costs. Absolutely. Um, Although with all this melting ice, it's causing kind of a power shift in the Arctic as countries like Russia, Norway, Canada, the US, and even China now all have a stake in this territory. Um, They're sending troops to guard their interests. Uh, Both America, Canada have been um, sending more and more troops, are expanding their military bases in the Arctic. And to match this, Russia is as well, because like you guys mentioned, there's with between the resources the potential savings in these shipping routes, there's potentially hundreds of billions of dollars on the table over the next decade as the ice melts in the Arctic. And not only that, even though these countries have their own self-interest of profitability and expanding their resources and their trade, um, with the melting of the ice caps and huge glaciers, it's rising uh, sea levels, which is causing... Um, real estate on coastal property to uh, go underwater. And it's also displacing uh, populations near the Himalayan mountains and all over the world because of the rising sea levels. And then this is also causing shifts in uh, the climate and weather patterns, which is also causing huge amounts of uh, concern in the agriculture space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, this, this, Ice melt-off has huge implications all around the world. And I truthfully think it's 
really sad that these governments and corporations are looking to capitalize on this rather than solve the problem. Yeah, but that's going to continue to happen. It's going to add additional tinder to the fire of the political, geopolitical tensions we have between the U.S. and China. Though it will cut down shipping costs, it provides that benefit to companies, and we will see that reflected in profits. Uh, that could be neutralized by the economic and political impacts that it has between the countries involved. Absolutely. You couldn't be more right, Josh. In fact, uh, China, which is not even that close to the Arctic compared to like America and Russia, are proclaiming themselves as an Arctic power. And the US right. and their allies have actually condemned this statement and asked them to take it back. And their response was simply no. Uh, they've made it clear that they are moving out to the Arctic, their interests are in the Arctic, and they're going to go there to stay. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, yes, tensions will be rising as we send more troops. China and Russia match those troops, especially since um, every, tensions have been high around Iran. Um, and in that area, there's been less access to the oil there. And so specifically Russia and China, who have got lots of oil from Iran, are now looking to move to the Arctic and get their oil from there instead. Yeah, I'm interested to see how that develops in the near future. Yeah, it'll, it'll be an interesting thing to watch. So the term of the week for this week is Trumponomics, which means... The economic policies of U.S. President Donald Trump that include cutting personal and corporate taxes, restructuring U.S. trade deals, and introducing large fiscal stimulus measures focused on infrastructure. Now, my current sentiment about Trump's economy is it's booming, and there has been a lot of volatility and uncertainty with us being at the end of the business cycle and with speculation of a recession either happening before the end of this year or sometime in 2020. But from uh, my recent talks with a friend, Enoch, he works at uh, Goldman Sachs as a financial advisor. And he was telling me that there's a very high probability that Trump will be in office for a second term. And if this happens, which most likely it will, we will not see a recession because Trump will use every tool and every power that he possibly has to keep the economy afloat and to keep it growing. It might slow down. It might not grow as at a prosperous rate as it has in the future, but we will most likely not see a recession during his term. That's my sentiment. And that's yeah. what I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's going to be a key uh, issue coming up in the next election because there's no doubt that uh, the economy's done well under Trump. Yeah, I completely disagree. Uh, I think that the continued artificial uh, interference in the economy through interest rates is, if anything, going to put us in a position where we continue to approach that, come closer to that point where we can't pay our borrowed money back and put us even closer to a recession. So I'm surprised by that sentiment. Uh, but I've heard it from multiple other people as well. It's a common sentiment right now. And I think it relates to short-term 
uh, extrapolation of the past in the short term and not considering where we're at uh, in relation to uh, where we've been in past history, what our economy most looks like in the past. Right now, what our economy looks like is we're approaching the point where we have to pay our money back. So we're approaching the point at which the debt to equity ratios for households and for corporations are too high. And uh, any interference in the economy is not going to prevent that. I agree. And sadly, I wish my sentiment was different. Um, I truly uh, do think that it would be healthy for our economy to go into a recession uh, because it's natural um, and it's, it's part of the business cycle and it's always been part of a business cycle and it's it's healthy for our economy to uh, to go down into a downturn and then uh, work our way up from there. But uh, some Fed uh, policymakers do think that we could bypass this recession by uh, current uh, monetary policy um, with with lowering interest rates and, and decreasing the borrowing costs and hopefully implementing a stronger economy through that. But I do think that with the usage of social media and the manipulation of Trump with his remarks through Twitter and social media, um, he is a very powerful person. He is the most powerful person in the world. And he's using his influence and power to ruin other economies and other political figures and to also stimulate our economy and keep it afloat. His words are the only reason why our economy is still booming. It's an extremely short-term uh, method of controlling the economy, controlling the stock market that is not going to persist and not going to last. In fact, the more he does it, the less of an effect it's going to have of the economy, the less people will take him seriously. Uh, the economy and the stock market cannot be manipulated in the long term by words alone. It all depends on the strength of the businesses, valuations, and the stage that we're at in the debt cycle. So uh, social media usage, manipulation of the interest rates, it's not going to prevent the uh, inevitable uh, having to pay our borrowed money back. I just want to urge our listeners to really take in what Josh just said right there, because that is probably one of the largest nationwide misconceptions about our economy currently. And I really want our listeners to be aware of what Josh just said right there, because I don't think he could have been more accurate. Thank you. Okay. Well, that brings us to our book review of the week. This week, all three of us have actually read this book, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, the book is called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I would also like to note that it is one of Warren Buffett's favorite books, and he said on multiple occasions he tries to reread it every year. Um, so for our listeners out there, highly recommended book. Josh, do you want to give us a little background on this book? Yeah, so How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a book I read when I was 16. Great book. Uh, what it's about is it emphasizes the importance of kindness, deference, and most importantly, empathy in your interactions with other people. And that is absolutely critical in any situation you're in, whether it's business, whether you're in a leadership role, whether you're trying to make a new friend or win someone over to your way of thinking. 
the most useful tool that you have in your holster when interacting with another person is thinking about where they're coming from, what they want, what their desires are, and demonstrating that you understand where they're coming from. Absolutely. I think this book, like you said, is a very useful tool just in your daily life. One of the main things I got out of it, I also read it when I was 16 and something I still do to this day is when I meet new people is genuinely try to interact with them because no matter what, either you can make their day or it might come to benefit you down uh, somewhere down the line. In the book, one of the things the author talks about is just trying to find something to somebody on and that doesn't really mean like just making up something and being fake but find like one thing you like about the person you're talking with and just give them a little compliment and it can go a long way um are there any things that you guys kind of do still on a daily basis that you got out of this book uh yeah so i mean there's one line in the book that i remember that always stuck with me which says if you get anything out of this book it's Always try to understand where the other person's coming from. And I can't stress that or repeat it enough. Uh, when you meet a new person, or whether it's someone you already know, think hard about the way they're thinking and how what they're saying is impacted by their desires and what they want. And I guarantee you, your interactions will be far more useful or far more productive and efficient and uh, beneficial to both of you as a result. Now, I will, and that's essential in any situation you're in, whether it's a negotiation, you're meeting a new person, you want to leave a good first impression. Uh, I will say one thing about the book, though. I've met two types of people. And it's with that, with that uh, point aside, that you should always understand where people are coming from. That's always true. But I've met two types of people throughout my life. It's people who need to read this book and people who need to stay far away from it. And the reason I say that is the book teaches you, it emphasizes very heavily how to be deferential, kind, and um, almost to the extent that you apologize for yourself. That aspect of the book was something that I think is more relevant to the time that it was written. Uh, the culture was a little different than it is today. And I've met people throughout my life that are agreeable and try to build rapport with you to a fault to the extent that they uh, put themselves down. So if you have a tendency to do that, I still recommend you read this book. Uh, there are multiple points and lessons in it that are extremely useful, but I would disregard a lot of the lessons that it teaches regarding uh, you know, self-apologizing for yourself, being extremely deferential, uh, because with kindness, with empathy, one of the most important characteristics that you could have is assertiveness. Uh, so it's not a book that you should read if you want to learn to be assertive, but it is a book that you should read to learn empathy and deference. You are absolutely right. That's actually some really good insight. It's important to keep in mind with some of these lessons that this book was written in the 1930s. So some of the points haven't aged as well as others, but Going off of uh, your advice, I think the readers now will be able to kind of understand the points that they need to focus on and the points that they need to have a little more perspective on, um, given that things have changed. Right. 
and how we uh, compose our book summaries uh, to be able to do our book reviews of the week is we read the books and we take highlights from the books and the key takeaways and uh, we list out all of these book summaries on our website and if you're interested and like what you're hearing you could always subscribe to our newsletter the what's up friday newsletter or uh, go on to our website www.personalfinancialindependence.org uh, thank you, Josh, for being here with us today. We really appreciate your feedback and your insight. And you have been our first, but probably one of our most rememberable guests that we'll have on our podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thank you, Josh. I just really enjoyed having you on our show. We hope to have you back on here soon. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed this week's What's Up podcast and would love your feedback and to hear what's up in your lives as well. Feel free to shoot us an email to the address in the podcast notes below. Thank you.